Welcome, my name is Loriana Hernandez Aldama, two-time cancer survivor and patient advocate, and you are listening to Stage Free, a place where we help cancer patients find the tools and resources they need to master survival. Cancer survivorship begins the day you are diagnosed. Over time, you may beat it or you may learn to live with it. Whatever the outcome, you probably wanna talk about it, and that's where we can help. Each week, I will share my insights and personal experience along with notable experts and cancer survivors. Together, we can help patients navigate the complicated road all survivors must travel. The goal, we want everyone to have an equal chance to not only survive, but most importantly, to thrive. Hola, hi everyone, I'm Loriana Hernandez Aldama, and I am truly honored to be your host for Stage Free, and here talking about mastering survival. Survivorship, I know it's hard. I know that firsthand after surviving AML leukemia and breast cancer, it is work, that I have to do every single day, and I'm sure many of you affected by cancer as well. It's not just about surviving, we also all wanna thrive. And together we will share the challenges that survivors face as we transition from a diagnosis to everyday life. We also wanna support caregivers and providers to help with those research uh, resources for patients. So today I have an amazing guest. You've heard her on one of our other podcasts. Her name is Dr. Marianne Lesberg. She is my friend and also Chief of Breast Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center. So Dr. Lesberg, I could go on and on about all your awards, uh, that you've been recognized by Forbes as one of the top breast medical oncologists, on and on and on. So we are so thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So today, you know I'm a journalist. We met, and I loved, at a speaking engagement, I'm so thrilled that we met. And I was telling you, I, I love to research and I'm all about the facts. And so many times when you get diagnosed, you start typing on Dr. Google and go on the Facebook groups, which is good because you have to be informed, but it can get scary. And for me, it sends me down a dark rabbit hole. My PTSD gets triggered. So tell me if you have some advice to patients when we start doing that, how do we sort through what we're reading on the internet and what we're hearing on Facebook uh, when we go into our doctor? Yeah, it's such an important question. There is so much information out there. And I think it's absolutely, you know, there's important for patients to look for information for themselves. I think it's, it's, it's your health, it's your diagnosis. So I'm not one of those people to say, oh, don't go on Google. However, I think as information is found, I think it will be really important to, to judge the source, who is making the statement? Do do they or do they not have a medical background? Um, is it a shared experience, like a patient shared experience, which is also important, or is it more uh, coming from medical data, from research, uh, clinical trials, for example? So just kind of deciding for yourself um, the type of source that you're looking at, the date. Uh, we know that breast cancer and other cancers are advancing at a dizzying speed. So even information from a year ago may not be as accurate. So looking at the date. Um, and then three, doing a check-in with yourself. Are you feeling more anxious and overwhelmed reading that information? Or is it an empowering feeling that you're learning about your diagnosis? If it's more of an anxious feeling, maybe putting it aside for a little bit or jotting down questions that then you either call your healthcare team with or put put those questions in the portal so we can help put it into better context for you. And sometimes it's okay to ask somebody like your caregiver, your family member, hey, here's a topic I need to know more on. Can you do research and kind of sort through 
for me. I, I've done that to my sister because she can handle more and I have PTSD really bad. And then I start to have more issues that I think are happening to me. So I give her an assignment, even though I'm the journalist, and I say, Lisa, I need you to research this for me. Uh, but you brought up a very good point that there is a lot of material that is dated just because breast cancer is advancing so quickly that if you do find a study from a year ago of whether chemotherapy should be first or surgery should be first, and think that that may have changed, like we've talked about in our previous podcast. One of the biggest examples I can share is, for example, for a type of breast cancer um, that, that uh, we covered in Breast 101, the HER2 over expressing breast cancer. If you look at some of the older literature on, on the web, it will actually tell you that it's the most aggressive type of breast cancer. Survival is low. However, that was before we had our newer HER2 targeted treatments. And now it's actually one of the best most favorable prognostic uh, breast cancer. So that's one example where the timing of the report really makes a difference. So really put it in perspective. Now here's something, there's a, there's a Facebook group, there's many I belong to with breast cancer survivors and also leukemia survivors. And I read stuff and then I start to panic. There was a personal story um, sharing about the perils of the internet and having breast cancer. And this person was on an aromatase inhibitor to suppress her hormones um, for many years and now that the protocol has changed from taking those types of drugs from five years to 10 years. I'm on two years or so and I'm hoping to go to 10 because I don't want a recurrence. I don't need a third cancer. But then this person says, oh, now because now I regret staying on it because now I have endometrial cancer and she's blaming that, that particular type of drugs for it. And so then other patients are responding saying, well, now I'm gonna to talk to my doctor. I wanna quit my drug. And that may not be the best response. Can you talk to us about how how important it is of how patients respond when they read this? Because we can't be reactionary like this all the time. Yes. Yeah, so I I think it, I think it's 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 such a tough tough area in, in that you know I do believe that patients are experts in that lived experience, and I would never want to discount that experience. However, I, I do think it's it's very important that as you, as as you read about these experiences, to to realize that these are the experiences of one person. This doesn't make it any less important. However, it's important to put that in the context of the clinical trials where hundreds or thousands of patients were treated, and I think this is something your clinical team can help you with. So. I do think that these groups are super important in terms of sharing, you know, side effects that maybe we haven't as clinicians maybe done a good job of explaining. So so I, I would use them as another tool to find out just just what other patients are experiencing, but but realize that maybe particularly some of those very negative experiences. Again, it's important for that one person and no way do I want to discount that but it doesn't mean that that experience will necessarily happen to 99% of the other folks. And there is so much good that some of these medications do. I would hate for one negative experience of one patient and hundreds of patients to deprive you of that benefit that these these drugs have been proven to show. Well, and, and as a breast oncologist, if one of your patients is reading something like this and decides, you know what, I'm quitting this drug, I imagine you want that dialogue with your patient, please reach out to you. Is that what you would say? Absolutely. And I think kind of, 
I try to say that in, in, in our in our medical visits and that, you know, if you read something that is concerning to you, rather than just deciding to stop on your own, which you absolutely can, you're a free agent. Um, but I would love to have the opportunity to discuss it with you. Um, I just had another example with, with, with another drug where the eye complications are extremely rare. So it's not something that I had really counseled the patient during the visit because there were so many other common toxicities to talk about. And so when she went home, she she read the fine print about the eye complications um, and she was kind of like, well, you didn't mention this. Can we talk about this? And I'm so glad that she reached out. So again, I could put it into that broader context of the low frequency, how in over 15 years of breast oncology practice, I've not even had one complication like that. So I think that trusting relationship between the clinician and patient is is so important for that reason. And I agree with you. I think it's important to be open with your doctors. And I'm data-driven. I, not everybody may be, but I, I say to my doctor, tell me why I shouldn't. Like I went to my GYN oncologist and said, I had leukemia, I had full body radiation, I had breast cancer, I'm high risk for so many things. Tell me why I shouldn't be getting my ovaries out because I keep reading about women on Facebook who had breast cancer and they're getting their ovaries out. Why am I different? And so I said, I need you to make a case for me. And that was a big deal. I wanted data. I wanted her to explain. And she was trying to say, well, you are hormone positive, but you're, I can't even remember the conversation because at some point I did get overwhelmed and tune it out and that can happen. But I needed to have that conversation and need stats. I don't know if you have more examples you want to share of some of your patients and why it's important to have these conversations. I love that, actually, kind of the, the way you pose that question. I'm, I may need to borrow that. Um, I think um, I try to ask my patients what numbers mean to them. Some patients really like numbers and percentages, and some people don't. And uh, the, the, how we describe numbers and probabilities, there's actually an art to it so that um, for example, if a risk goes from 4% to 2%, it may sound like so, so, so outrageous and huge for me to say there's a 50% reduction in risk, um, whereas the absolute difference is 2%. So I try to kind of really educate my patients on the magnitude of risk and try to use more of those absolute risks rather than relative risks. This may be a little too jargony here. That's what this doctor was trying to explain to me because I, I'm so fearful of a third cancer and I know I'm told I'm high risk from that full body radiation. I don't think they're doing anymore on people. And I'm having this conversation and I know I have a delayed healing marker and I kept saying, well, please tell me. It's not like I want surgery because I have trouble recovering, but I'm just, you know, I, I have a lot of fears. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, some patients tell me I don't like percentages. Just tell me what to do. So every patient is a little different. And so being able to tell your clinician very directly how you want your options explained. Um, I like pros cons lists. Uh, like like the, these are the advantages of taking the drug. These are the disadvantages. And um, I also like to tell patients that, especially with some of the endocrine therapies and anti-estrogen therapies, um, I like to say it's not a jail sentence, meaning that they can start it. And it doesn't mean that they have to take it forever if they can change their mind. And I think that can sometimes ease the anxiety of making the decision where 
at any point, you have the right to change your mind. So it's okay to start and try it out and see how the side effects agree with you or not. Yes, I agree. And I know I have side effects. I know I gained like 30 pounds, but I, I also know the benefits and there are trade-offs with everything. So there's just going to have to be more of me. I'm not thrilled about that, but I'd rather live a long time and watch my son grow up. That's so important to me. As you know, it's it's such an emotional thing for me. I think with this particular doctor, as I'm you're talking about this, I think she lost me when I started crying and she said, well, maybe sometimes you should try forgetting you had cancer. And then, then I lost it and um, had to remind her that from the minute I wake up, I remember when my feet are on fire and all the other, look at myself in the mirror, all the other problems. So I did have to change doctors after that because I did have a little meltdown. Um, but because it does matter how you interact with your patient. And I know that you are amazing. So I know this is not an issue with you. I'm sharing that we've all had a bad experience and, and you're allowed to change providers. If you don't Absolutely. feel like you're getting what you need out of that particular provider. And now I found a wonderful person who is a good match for me. Um, yes. I do you want to go back to one other thing? And I don't know how much we can expand on this topic yet, but there are some new tests that are coming out with different companies about circulating tumor cells and, and knowing if you have cancer before you have cancer. And it's like a slippery slope of an ethical debate. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because patients are reading this also on Facebook and they're like, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask my doctor, why won't my doctor prescribe this? And someone's like, you should go to mine. How do you respond yeah. to that? And how often are you hearing these questions? Uh, we're, we're hearing it a lot. And I would encourage all the listeners to continue to bring these questions up. It's really exciting technology. I think it's important to say that. I think for many years, we've been looking for a blood test that would help us detect cancer earlier, detect breast cancer recurrence earlier, and we haven't had it. And a lot of the older technology used to be called circulating tumor cell technology or CPCs. And the studies showed that Yes, finding it was not a good thing, but then even if we acted on the information, it didn't tend to change the outcome. So people kind of got disappointed with the whole blood biomarker field until this new set of assays were developed. Um, these are called circulating tumor DNA tests. Some of them are precisely built based on your original tumor. So this is truly personalized medicine where fragments of your original tumor are used to devise a, a, a personal uh, tumor DNA assay in the blood looking for fragments of uh, tumor tissue that may be circulating before we can see it on a scan or before you have any symptoms. So it's exciting. Uh, I do have a lot of hope for the future of these tests. Um, what, what the data are showing right now are that finding it in the blood does suggest that the, the individual who has the finding, uh, she, she's at a higher risk of developing a recurrence sometime in the future. And that sometime in the future could be months from now. The debate is, my, one of my doctors said, but would you want to know? I said, because they said, well, then you'll live with anxiety. I said, I already live with anxiety and PTSD. I said, you know, I wake up at night sometimes worrying about if there's going to be another one, please, Lord, don't let it happen. Uh, but then on the flip side, the doctor made a good point saying, if we do find it, where do we go? I mean, there's so many places to run and look. So exactly. I know there's more to, more to be developed with this for everyone to yeah. feel comfortable that this is the best decision for the patient. 
Yes. So what we don't know is that some of these clear on their own. So essentially, we could be alarming the patient for a finding that would have cleared on its own without any significant clinical effect. The second area is with what you are alluding to, which is that we don't know what to do with this information. Do we change your treatment? Even though we can't see any cancer objectively in the body, do we put you through months of chemotherapy or a new drug with side effects? So those studies are being done now. So, so in the context of a clinical trial, I'm very supportive of this technology. It's the only way that we can learn how to use this information. When patients have these tests outside of a clinical trial and the findings are positive, it's just hard to know what to do with it. We're, we're kind of in the dark right now. Absolutely. Is are there Before I move on to one other question, I know we don't have a lot of time, but are there any other things that you're hearing that are trending that patients are coming in and asking you these questions that they're finding off the Facebook groups or social media? So there's been a constant debate in breast cancer surveillance about the benefits of a PET scan versus a CAT scan and a bone scan. And we get this question a lot. Um, pretty much the majority of clinical trials use the CAT scans and the bone scans. Um, insurance companies tend to really sometimes restrict our ability to order PET scans. The cost differential is actually not that different, and each test gives us a different range of information. What I did want to point out, though, is that we have newer PET scan technologies coming. So some patients are reading about, for example, um, specialty PET scans that mm -hmm. specifically visualize the estrogen receptor. I think there's a lot of exciting data coming that perhaps these types of PET scans may give us more precise information about the disease status of patients who have hormonally driven breast cancers. And there may be other types of PET scans coming, looking at HER2 and other biomarkers. So it's an evolving area of what is the optimal imaging test in breast cancer. So happy to kind of take those questions one by one for each patient, and we can decide together what to order. And when you talk imaging, I met someone at a conference who was saying, we need to get better imaging across the board for equity, because he was telling me there are some hospitals that are in rural communities that the imaging is like 2015. They're not even looking at the same level. And I, I was floored to hear that. And that's a reality. He said these hospitals can't afford to buy it. So that's a whole nother episode, a whole nother show to talk to you about. Real quickly before we go, there is also a shift talking about how the importance of getting an ultrasound combined with the mammogram, especially if you have dense breasts, because you can detect it better. So can, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're absolutely right. I, I absolutely believe that in that data and that is ready for prime time. So I absolutely encourage um, any woman who is um, noted to have heterogeneously dense breasts on their mammogram report to do consider supplemental imaging with, with, with a whole breast ultrasound. We're actually able to find certain tumors that only appear on the ultrasound and not on the mammogram. I will never forget when they diagnosed me with breast cancer and I'm waiting and they're studying and they're like, oh, sit in the waiting room. There was another girl next to me and they're like, would you like an ultrasound too? And she's like, no. And I'm like, oh no, sit, get the ultrasound. Like you never know it will come up. That girl came and hugged me and was diagnosed with breast cancer because of the ultrasound yeah. and not the mammogram. And I will never forget that day. So I'm always yeah. encouraging people to, if, if yes. you can get it, get it. 
Yes, absolutely. So, so particularly good for dense breasts as well as younger patients where the the density of the breast tends to be higher and uh, in, in younger women, particularly in their 40s, the mammograms can have less sensitivity. So combining it with the ultrasound is really important. The ultrasound and mammogram combo is also important for those individuals who have a higher risk of breast cancer. And this may be, um, it could be related to, you know, a primary relative, for example, with breast cancer. So this puts them above the average risk for the average woman in the U.S. So those, those, those individuals should also get supplemental imaging. Great advice. Any quick final thoughts before we go? Lots of new developments are coming to the breast cancer world. And I do, I, I do think our treatments and diagnostics will continue to get more personalized and precise. Um, and I think, um, I, I, I do think we're going to continue to make headway. And so patients should really speak up about what they're looking for, what they think the gaps are. Um, and we can work together on these things together. Well, Dr. Mayor Lesberg, my friend and also brilliant breast oncologist from Yale Cancer Center, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to have you on again for more topics we talked about to expand on them. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Stage Free. Join us every week for a new podcast featuring thought leaders and experts who will help cancer survivors not only survive, but ultimately thrive throughout treatment and recovery as they learn how to master survival. Learn more about us at armorupforlife.org.